to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this evening. We uh, have been going through the true story of the world. And so for the last year, we have been soaking ourselves in the true story. And, and it's really the only story that can bring meaning and shape to our lives, right? We're all asking three or four basic questions. Uh, you know, who am I? Where am I? What's wrong with the world that I live in? And how can we fix it? And we really believe that the true story of the world is the only story that can really answer the questions that can fill life with meaning, right? And it, it is the story you've been going through. And we started uh, at, at the very beginning of the year with the beautiful truth of God's creation, right? God created everything um, good, right, and beautiful, and, and he made human beings to, to bear his image and to live in relationship with him. This perfect relationship where we're able to walk with God and live under his perfect rule and reign. And, and the first humans, as, as they were living in this perfect world, decided that they wanted to try to live life without God. They, they rebelled against God. And the result of that rebellion is sin. Sin entered into the earth and it twisted everything up, right? Everything that was good, right, and beautiful was now tainted by sin. And, and most importantly, it twisted up mankind's relationship with God. It twisted up mankind's relationship with one another. It, it twisted up mankind's relationship with themselves, right? Guilt and shame was now a part of our identity when we were image bearers and that had nothing to do with God and it twisted up mankind's relationship with the world and creation itself. And thankfully we have a God who is um, a good God and a faithful God and he's a promise maker and a promise keeper and he made this promise that through one man, through uh, Abraham's line, that he was going to send a rescuer, right? The, the thing that twisted up all of creation and the thing that distorted our relationship with God and one another and the world that we live in was going to be fixed by the sending of a savior, a rescuer. And, and God made good on that promise. He sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus didn't come as a roaring lion. He came as this sacrificial lamb who uh, laid down his life so that the, 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 the penalty of sin could be paid for. And you and I could walk without guilt and we can begin to be freed from the shame that sticks to us because of our sinful nature. And, and not only that is when Jesus died and resurrected, he, uh, he, he was it inaugurated his throne, right? He became king over all of creation. And he, he, uh, his power was now not just up in heaven, not in some far off place, but here. And he, he created a people that would live under his perfect rule and reign once again. And then last week we saw... Uh, that God, in, or Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus himself, invited his followers to take up their role in God's story. And so now he, he, he calls his disciples together and he says, look, you're going to continue God's renewing mission in this earth. And, and he says this, he says, go, right? And this word go is as you go, right, as you live your lives, wherever you work, live, and play, you're going to do that um, with God's mission in mind. You're going to make disciples, teaching them what it looks like to um, lo be loved by Jesus and to live in God's kingdom. And then he makes this promise at the very end of that statement. As he invites his disciples to take up their role in God's story, he says this, behold, I'll be with you till the end of the age. 
Now, he does that, and then he's like, boop, see you later, and floats off into the clouds. Peace out, right? How is he going to keep good on his promise? Well, today, we're going we're gonna to read the story that reminds us that God is with us until the end of the age. That God didn't just leave us as orphans, but that his presence is here and dwelling with us in this beautiful event called Pentecost. Right? It's the moment that the Holy Spirit comes and fills the earth once again. And we're going to talk about that. But before we do, the, con- the conversation about the Holy Spirit can be kind of a weird one. Right? No matter uh, who you are, you, you have had some sort of thoughts about the Holy Spirit. Right? You could be like full-blown charismatic and you're like, yes, let's get into it. I can't wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Like, let's, let, let, the, let the wind of the Lord blow up in this place. Like, I'm ready for it. Right? Or you can be like... Uh, I'm not really sure about that Holy Spirit side, right? I, I can get down with the Father, and I love the Son, but the Holy Spirit is like the redheaded stepchild of the Trinity, and I just don't know what to do with the presence of God, the Spirit of God in our lives. It can be different. We all have different views of that. Well, what I'm hoping that we do today is we start a conversation about the beauty, the necessity, right, the essentialness, of the spirit of the living God dwelling among us, all right? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to spend some time, just a couple minutes, turn with a couple of people around you, and I just want you to answer this question. What has your experience of the Holy Spirit been like in your life, okay? You're gonna see a top photo there. You got Benny Hinn, right, hitting people with jackets and slaying them in the spirit. And then you got this kind of ethereal kind of like, like historic church picture, right, where, where the spirit is kind of this, this essence that's out there, this doctrine or theological essence that's out there, but he doesn't really have anything to do with my actual life. So break up two minutes and just talk about your experience with the Holy Spirit. I wish I could be a fly on the wall of your conversations in here because I know the experiences of the Holy Spirit probably are far and wide-reaching, right? We all have, we all come with different Um, baggage, understandings of who the Holy Spirit is and what he's doing on the earth. And so let's go to the word. We're going to open up Acts chapter 2, and we're going to just see that day when the Holy Spirit flooded the earth, when Jesus made good on his promise to dwell with his people. And so could you open up to Acts chapter 2? We're going to read verse 1. Let me pray. Father, as we read your word, God, may we see something of your glory. God, may we see something of your faithfulness. God, may we see something of your goodness and your design for what it means to belong to you, to be children of a living God, to be servants of a king, a good king. God, to be friends of Jesus. Please fill us with that goodness tonight. When the day of Pentecost came, which Pentecost is just a a word that's used to talk about 50 days after the Passover meal, right? Pentagram, that whole thing, five-sided, 50 days, that's what Pentecost is. So 50 days after uh, the Passover meal was shared, and we all know that that Passover meal was the weekend that Jesus uh, was arrested and died a sacrificial death, and then three days later resurrected victorious over sin, Satan, and death, right? And then he told his disciples to wait, and 50 days later, this is what happens. They were all together in one place. I love that picture. 
They were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like blowing, like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and they came to rest on each of them. And all of them in that moment were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Right, this is where people start getting uncomfortable, right? Start talking about speaking in tongues. And now they were staying in Jerusalem. And, uh, and uh, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven were there. And when they heard this sound... Right, the, the speaking of tongues, right? When, when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and this rushing wind came in and the presence of God filled the place and the disciples started to speak in these tongues, these spiritual tongues as the Spirit enabled them, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven began to form a crowd. And they came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language. And they were utterly amazed. And they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and, and Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now imagine how fascinating this must have been, how amazing this moment must have been. Right, People who were far off, who weren't a part of, of Jerusalem and the, the ethnic Jewish Israel culture, but loved God, all of a sudden heard everybody in that, in that period proclaiming the excellencies of God in their own voice. And, and I can imagine as, as Dr. Luke is writing this passage down, how excited he is to get to this place. Because you know what happens in Luke chapter 2? He tells us about the angels announcing the coming of Jesus. And he says, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. And now here he's seeing it come to fruition. He's writing about the truth that the good news of great joy is for all people. It's for everyone that's there. And I know for me, when I read this, I'm brought back to the story of the Tower of Babel. Right when, when, when the arrogance of the people right, had gotten so, they've gotten so prideful that they start building this tower to the heavens, right? They're going to make a staircase to heaven and show how smart they are to the world around them. And God, out of his loving kindness, didn't want their, their, their pride to destroy themselves. He scatters their language. And right, and, and they can't they, they can't like get together and manipulate and 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 uh, come up with ideas of how to get to God again. And so everyone's separated. And here in Acts two, we see the reversal of that moment where every tribe, tongue, and nation is coming together, reconciling. And instead of a scattered tongue, they're hearing it in their own language. 
But then it also excites me to the vision of John in Revelation 7, 9, and 10, right? Where every tribe, tongue, and nation, multitudes of every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered around the throne room, praising and worshiping God. See, the reconciling power of Christ has come to the earth. Like, like Kevin just said, the, the dividing lines of hostility, right, where, where, where race and nations and ethnicities were divided are now coming together. and We're actually seeing the reconciling power of God's spirit present on the earth here and now. It's no longer just a promise that will happen one day. The reconciling spirit is among us. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? We should all be asking that question. What does this mean? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? If the reconciling power of Christ is here among us, what does it mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. So you have these people who are amazed, some were perplexed, and others were just cynical. And then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. He said, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk. The reason? It's only nine in the morning. Now, if it was noon, they might be drunk, right? Missy O'Macy can get on board with that, right? He's talking about our church right here, right? No, they're not drunk yet. It's nine in the morning. These people are not. Let me tell you what's going on. And so he reads from the prophet Joel and he says, In the last days I will pour out my spirit on all people and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The reconciling power of Christ has come. I love what this passage does. It reminds us what is already here. And we've talked about this already. There's an already but not yet reality to the Christian faith. We're still waiting for Jesus to come back in the flesh and dwell with us. But we are not waiting for the presence of God anymore. The presence of the living God dwells among us and his reconciling power are here. And one of the things that uh, I know is hard is that we move from time to time in our Christian faith from being um, amazed to kind of perplexed to cynical, don't we, about the presence of God in our lives? Sometimes we see it, we feel it, we experience it, we're amazed by it, and then we're perplexed, and then all of a sudden the kind of cynicism comes in. I remember one time I was in Africa, and we were in a remote village, And a church had uh, just got planted out there. It was like six months old. And there was hundreds of of people that had come to know Jesus through this church. 
And, and we, we drove four hours outside of the major city in the middle of nowhere, no power or anything. And we go there and they're constructing this church building. Right? First church ever to exist in this village. And so we hold a prayer meeting for this. So all the church members come together and we're all praying. And um, we're like uh, dedicating the building and we're just excited for them. We're sharing good news with them and we're just encouraging them. And we have this prayer meeting that was absolutely amazing. Everybody gathers into this small room and we just start praying. And I tell you, like, you could just feel the presence of God there. And the, the senior pastor asked if he could pray over me. And he did. He speaks Chechua, so I needed my translator. And so he starts praying, and instead of my translator coming closer to me, which he normally does, he moves out of the way. And another member of the congregation comes up, and he gets really close to my ear. And in really broken English, he just starts saying these phrases. And it was like he was speaking to my soul. So I could hear the pastor praying, right? And I couldn't understand anything he was saying. And this guy was speaking in broken English, just words and phrases and things. And he was speaking into my life. He was talking to me about my family. He was talking to me about my church back home. He, he, he was uh, addressing things that I was worried about and had anxiety over. And he was just speaking the truth of God over me. And I was in tears, weeping in this moment. The presence of God was there. My heart was filled up and encouraged, and it was like he was just reading my mail in really broken English. And I left that prayer meeting amazed. And we're driving home in the car, and um, the guys about an hour into our trip home start laughing. And they're like, wasn't that amazing? And I was like, yeah, that was just so amazing. Those prayers were so beautiful. And he's like, I was like, man, I wish I, wish I spoke Chechua. That's what I said to, to the, my translator. And he smiled and he's all, Chechua? He's like, no, the pastor wasn't speaking Chechua. He was speaking in tongues. And he said, and the other guy that came up into uh, your ear doesn't even speak English. And in that moment, I was perplexed. I left amazed, filled, seen by God. And then I was perplexed. And then all of a sudden, that doubt started to come into my mind. Did that really just happen? Was that what I thought it was? And I think sometimes like that, an event like this can be like that. It's something that happened back then to those people, but we, we miss the reality that the living God is here and wants to speak to us. So what I hope we see in this text is that there's some things that, that, that we struggle with that the, the Holy Spirit is not just a power to wield, right? It's not just about healings and miracles and prophecies. It's, it's, it's not just about that, although those things do exist when the Holy Spirit comes. And it's not a doctrine to debate. The Holy Spirit isn't up for debate. We read about him over and over in our text, but he is a person to know. The presence of the living God is among us. And not only that, he is essential to the Christian life. And if we are going to be, Missio Mesa, people who are formed by God together for the sake of our neighbor, we must seek to be a people who are filled with, listen to, walk with, and depend on the Holy Spirit. Old theologians call him the chief constituent of our faith. A constituent is someone who has veto power over your life, right? Someone who has voting rights over the soul. Gordon Fee is a theologian and a pastor, and, and he wrote this phrase that arrested me. He said, most believers are binatarian, right? We're Trinitarian, 
Right? We believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but most people believe functionally as Binitarians. They love the Father, they're down with the Son, but when it comes to the Holy Spirit, He's just a distant thought. And so Christian spirituality without the Holy Spirit becomes a feeble human project. And I know it's cultural difficulties because the word spirit in our culture is just become a catchphrase for all the unseen and unexplainable things around us in the world, right? But I get it. You can fill it with anything, right? If, if you don't, if you're not down with Jesus, you can just say you're spiritual and then you can fill your spiritual bag with anything you want and you can create a God in your own image. But the Holy Spirit is among us and wants to form us and shape us and see God as he reveals himself in the word and in the world around us. I want to give you one of my favorite uh, pictures of the Holy Spirit in uh, the Bible. It comes from Ezekiel 37. And in ancient Near East, uh, the spirit was associated with either the wind or the breath, but not in like just a philosophical way, in a really real way. It was like the wind that you can see its effects as it blows through trees, you know it's there. And breath, when you look at someone who's living, you know that they have breath. And the prophet Ezekiel says this, the hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley that were very dry. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? It's a good question. And a smart prophet answers well, sovereign Lord, you alone know. That's what you say when you don't know the answer, right? Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these dry bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied, and as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendon and flesh appeared on them, and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, to breathe. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breathe from the four winds, and breathe into these slain that they may live. Hundreds of years before this moment, Ezekiel was prophesying this event. That in the last days, the Lord will pour out his spirit. And it's the living breath of God that will animate our dead souls back to life. How beautiful is this moment? Biblical history, the Holy Spirit is present at the beginning of the story, brooding over the waters, at work over the waters. God formed the first humans and then breathed life into them. The judges and the prophets were endowed by the Spirit to have strength or wisdom or a word we just saw in Ezekiel. But then in the New Testament, 
We see Jesus is born by the Spirit. His cousin John was filled with the Spirit in the mother's womb. The Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. He did his miracles and healings by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was raised from the dead by the Spirit. He told his disciples that it's better that he goes away so that he can send the Holy Spirit, another advocate, another helper. Church, when's the last time you thanked Jesus for going away? That somehow Jesus is saying, it's better that I'm not here so that the Spirit can come and breathe life, reanimate your soul, right? As we're all dead in our trespasses, we need new life in us and the Spirit comes in to reanimate us. And then he told his believers, don't do anything until the Spirit comes because it's useless trying to do anything in the flesh without the Spirit is futile. The Spirit's a regular theme. 207 times in the Old Testament, 367 times in the New Testament, the Spirit is mentioned predominantly by the Apostle Paul. His main topic was not justification by faith alone. It was actually life in the Spirit. And so I want us to consider three things that the Holy Spirit does as we wrap up. One, the Spirit restores the presence of God to us. In the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all people, and whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. What was lost in the garden? Relationship. Relationship with the living God. And then you get this story, right, that, that, that goes through the Bible of, 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 of relationship with God being distorted because of sin. They no longer walked together face to face, but God had to be relegated because he was holy and because anything his holiness would touch would be burnt up. And so, the, so uh, they had him in the Ark of the Covenant, in the tent of the meeting, in the middle of the tabernacle. He tabernacled in the temple, right? Man and God could not not be together because of sin. But after Jesus Christ paid the penalty of our sin, the presence of God is available to mankind again. It's beautiful. In John 14, Jesus says this, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because he neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. And he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. And what I hope we see in this is that the holy, the work, this, this moment of Pentecost is not, or the work of salvation is not just this utilitarian event, right? It's not like God is, is, is playing this cosmic chess match with Satan and he's backed up into a corner and his main aim at life is just to defeat Satan. God's chief end, his chief aim is to reconcile all of creation back to himself through his son Jesus. God's chief aim is to restore what was lost in the garden, relationship with the living God. 
And the result of our faith in Jesus Christ is restored relationship. And the result of our, our confession of who Jesus is and, and, and our confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior is that we are born again by the Spirit. Our dead, dry bones are now breathed life back into and we're reanimated. And then the Spirit pours God's love into our hearts by which we can cry out, Abba, Father. There's two passages, one in the Old Testament. It's when Moses is, is leading the people and God's ticked at his people. They keep sinning. And he's like, look, I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to let you go into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. And you know what Moses says? I'm not going. The point of the whole thing is to be with you again. I'm not going unless you go with us. And then I love in Psalm 84, this, this song of Korah. And, and it says, how lovely is your dwelling place. My, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. It is, it, it, there, it, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Church, the Holy Spirit has come to restore the presence of God to us. We are with him. But two, the Holy Spirit has come to form us into the people of God. God does not only forgive our sins, but he begins to liberate us from the grip that sin has over our lives. Right? And sin twists everything up. Our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with creation is messed up. And here, here's what I loved um, the questions that people were answering on our Instagram story. Kevin asked some questions. Hey, you know, what are some questions you have about the Holy Spirit? And it was like, how does the Spirit change us? Right? How does the Spirit go to work and change us? And predominantly, the Spirit is the giver of truth. He brings truth in us. The Spirit is at work to break the seductive power that culture has over us and give us a better story to live in. He reminds us of the true story of God. He convicts us when we begin to believe lesser and smaller stories. He illuminates truth. The Bible says that, um, that, that uh, spiritual things are impossible for the carnal mind to believe. Only, they can only be believed by the Spirit. He's working to bring belief and truth into our lives. But the Holy Spirit also is the changer of hearts. He doesn't just place new truth in our minds, but he gives us new uh, affections. Right? This is what the new covenant promise was. I, I will take the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Where we love God again. I love Ashley Knowles has a, uh, a, a, a quote that I love. He got it from Thomas Kramer. But basically he says this. He says, we're way less rational beings than we think we are. Aren't we? And, and this is what he says. He says, whatever the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. That's how we live our lives. Whatever we want in our, the deepest desire of our heart, we will choose that thing because we love it, and then we'll spend our lives writing a narrative or justifying it with some sort of story. But Thomas Chalmers says this, the heart is not so constituted, and the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. See, the Holy Spirit is at work in our loves. See, the good news is not just information to download, but it's truth to capture your affection. The Holy Spirit is saying, look at this God. 
Behold his glory. Look what he's done. Look how far he's gone to rescue and reconcile all of creation back to himself. Look how he's been faithful day after day after day after day in the midst of rebellion after rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. And he still does what he's promised for the sake of his people to bring them back. The expulsive power of a new affection. And the results of these new affections for God begin to work themselves out in our lives through the fruit of the Spirit, where things like love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and self-control begin to ooze out of us, and a new community is formed. And then the final thing is the Holy Spirit is at work empowering us for His mission. And what I love about Acts 2 is it shows us that God is not passively involved in his renewing work in the world. He's not passively involved in this restoration project, but he shows up through the form of the Spirit and fills his people. He is working by his Spirit in and through the life of his people to bring about the worship of the King and an appetite for the kingdom. And he does it in all kinds of ways. He gives us supernatural gifts. We just saw things like tongues and prophecy and words of encouragement and, and power to heal and to see and to discern. And then he even does it by using our natural gifts where the things, our, our own talents and treasures, where they used to be bent inward and for selfish reasons, he now turns them outward to use to build up the body of Christ. And so we see in Scripture all these beautiful things that the Spirit is at work doing. Let me just read you this list. The Spirit searches all things. The Spirit knows the mind of God. The Spirit reveals the gospel to people. He dwells among or within followers. The Spirit accomplishes all things. He gives life to those who believe. He cries out from within our hearts. He leads us in the ways of God. He bears witness with our own spirit. He has desires that are in opposition to the flesh. He helps us in our weakness. He intercedes on our behalf. He works all things together for the good. He strengthens us and he is grieved by our sinfulness. He bears witness to the character of God in our lives. And according to 1 Corinthians 12, 3, he says that no one can even utter that Jesus is Lord except by the assistance of the Holy Spirit. In the words of Ron Burgundy, he's a pretty big deal. He is. So what do we do, church? We have to be a people who learn to make room for the Spirit in our lives. We have to resist the temptation to fill our lives with anxious activity. And we have to hand our lives over to prayerful presence. That's a, that's a platism, right? It's in the words of KP. We have to resist that. We have to make room. Two, we have to learn to be a people who practice obedience to the Holy Spirit. I wish I had more time. I tell you story after story after story of, of, of little tiny acts of obedience lighting a fire in my soul. We have to be a people who learn to trade in our strategies and learn to depend on the Holy Spirit and listen when he speaks.
then we have to be a people who learn to delight in the Spirit's work. People learning to trade in our cynicism for celebration. Daily reflecting, what is the Spirit doing in me? What is the Spirit doing around me? And what is the Spirit wanting to do through me as the, as the family of God? What does He want to do through us? And then I want to give you one last picture of a Spirit-filled community. Just moments later after this event, not moments later, but we don't know the timeline, but a few paragraphs later in the same chapter, few verses later, here's the picture of we get the, the first spirit-filled church formed. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their possessions and their goods. They gave to anyone as they had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, what we see is when the Spirit of God is present, Things change. Our lives are reoriented around God and his kingdom and we're filled with the type of love and grace and mercy and faithfulness that I know we long for as a church. Let me pray. Father, in this moment, in this place, as we take communion together, Lord, I pray that we can make room for you. God, that we can begin to ask questions of what role does the Holy Spirit play in my life, in my daily life. God, that we can take a moment to examine ourselves. And God, we take a moment to celebrate the reconciling power of the living God among us. God, that there's people in this room that would never be here if it wasn't for your power at work in their lives. God, that there's people in this room that could never profess Jesus as Lord if it wasn't for your saving power, your Spirit's power in their lives. So God, like Ezekiel's vision, Lord, would you breathe life into us? Would the Spirit come alive and move among us? God, would we see visions and dream dreams and prophesy and proclaim the word of the Lord to one another? God, would we believe in faith for your healing presence, God, as you mend lives. God, would we be aware of what you're doing around us? We love you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.
and reminding us of God's presence. He's given us his spirit and he's given us a meal. Uh, both those are true. And so we come to the place in our gathering in the, in the liturgy of the night where we uh, remember the body and blood of Jesus. Uh, the reality, this is the high point. It leads right into this moment when we want to know, God, what is it that you want from me? What is it you want for me? That we come together, we're encouraged by the word, and then we move towards the table as a moment where the spirit reminds us of things that are true. Uh, Not just that he was present one day, but that he's present today. And not that we have a desperate need for Jesus that we used to have, but that we still have. Uh, Not just that he was the God of the story way back when, but he's a God of the story right now who has invited us to play our role in that. And there's a million different ways that the Spirit could speak to you in the seven steps it takes to get to the front of the room. But I encourage you not to race to the table to beat the person next to you, but as you move towards the table, listen for the voice of the Spirit. Listen for it. Is there something he wants to remind you of? Is there a relationship he wants to mend? Is there beauty that he wants to draw you back to? Is there empowerment that he wants to give you? Is there a people that he has laid out for you that he's been calling you to join him and working with them and you just haven't been listening? And then we come to the table and we get those elements. David will have the the bread and I'll have the juice. And as we hand that to you, see it as Christ himself giving you himself. Because none of the work that we want to do happens because we have a lot of energy. But it happens because the spirit of Jesus is alive and at work animating our activity just like he did in Acts 2. And so we're going to come to the same table that they used to come to. The same simple elements of bread. A family member makes it for us and we break it in remembrance of Jesus. We'll come to the juice, the grape. It was wine, I know, but we got juice, so everybody drinks. Uh, We have juice, but using that as a reminder in color and vividness of the blood of Jesus that formed a new covenant. And so I'm going to read these words that we read before we take communion most weeks. Uh, And when I'm done, I'm going to invite you into the table to come and meet us in the front. And we'll give that to you. I encourage you to take it on your own or take it as a family if you just want to bow your heads and pray. And then I'll send us out with a benediction. But friends, in the Lord's Supper, Christ offers us his own crucified body and shed blood. It's for all his people, assuring us of a share in his death and resurrection. By the Holy Spirit, he feeds us. I've said that line every week, just so you know, for the last like three months. But you probably heard it today. A little bit different. Uh, By the Holy Spirit, he feeds us with his resurrection life and binds us to each other as we share one loaf and one cup. We receive this food gladly, believing as we eat that Jesus is our life-giving food and drink and that he will come again to call us to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Amissio Mesa, you are welcome to the table.